All right, we are recording. So we are in 1 John chapter 4. Good morning, by the way. My wife reminded me to say good morning. It is a good morning, so I guess that should be acknowledged. So in 1 John chapter 4, we're continuing our series. And this part, part 7, is the fellowship's discernment. So we're going to talk about discernment and the standard by which we discern truth from error. And I kind of tease this a little bit on Friday night. We did the sermon again from last Sunday, so that way everybody could hear it. We had some recording issues, but now we're good to go. So we're following up on that. In chapter 4, starting in verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 6 today. So let's read verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Now, what we're going to do, sometimes I'll read through the whole text, but today we're going to look at each verse by itself and unpack it until we get to the end. Verse 6. So the first stop in our study of this passage is the persistence of deception. So on your notes, that's the very beginning of the outline. Verse 1 is about the persistence of deception. And if you could sum up this verse in a few words, it would be, don't be naive. Don't be naive. John is telling his little children here, his audience, that they should not be too trusting of people that come claiming to bring knowledge from God. Back then, the world was super religious. Today, it is too. Even people who say that I'm not religious, I'm an atheist, that is a religion. But back then, they were super religious, and they were very much known for syncretizing or synthesizing, both words apply here, taking all these different types of religions and straining them together. So someone would have no problem saying, I represent Christ, but yet the theology that they hold is aberrant. Okay, It's far off from what Scripture actually teaches. So they had a lot of people that would be coming among them, and they had no problem saying, like, we're Christians, we believe in Christ, but they also believed in many other deities, and their understanding of salvation in God was in error. And so we need to not be naive ourselves nowadays because there's lots of deception. And cults, not just the traditional ones that we're used to, such as Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, but many other cults are being created as we speak. And in fact, there's so much error around us, it's hard to keep up with it. I mean, when you go to a seminary and you learn about the cults and the different world religions, they're going to teach you the major ones, right? But that's not going to prepare you enough for the newfangled ideas that you might find in a local church. Okay, new stuff comes from the pulpit all the time. And when I say new stuff, in a sense, nothing new is under the sun, just like the Bible says. It can be wrapped up differently, but we have to be on our guard against these errors. Now, since we are not aware, of course, of all these different beliefs, how are we going to discern which ones are in error and which ones are truth? Well, thankfully, even though the error constantly changes and takes on new forms as the devil tries you know, with his, he, he is a genius. I'm not going to lie about that. He's good at what he does. When he wraps it up in a new way, he does a good job of deceiving lots of people. So how do we stay on our guard from that? Well, we have an unchanging standard, thankfully. So nowadays, there's a lot of people that think that we need to change Christianity. And at first, this is in the guise that we'll change our methods. We'll change our approach, you know. But nowadays, there are actually some people that claim to be Christian claim to be even evangelical, 
And they'll say, you know, the Bible's a community document. It's one of those documents that it changes based on culture. And though it contains the word of God, it's not without error. And I've heard people say this. And it's shocking to me that these people will say it with a straight face, but they do. And so, as it says here in verse 1, many false prophets have gone out into the world. I think, guys, that big deception, though, it doesn't happen overnight. Okay, uh, an evangelical church is not just going to allow somebody to stand up in the pulpit and say something really obviously off base and accept it outright. It's little changes. And the devil knows that. I mean, at the very beginning of his series of temptations with Adam and Eve, he started out with, did God really say that? So we're not even challenging the authority of God. We're just challenging your perception of the word. Do you understand? Have you interpreted God's word correctly. And so that's what happens is an undermining of what God has said. That can come in different forms. I think that it's it's been happening since the 1800s, really. I think that after the Reformation, there was this battle cry of sola scriptura. Let's go back to the authority of the Bible. And so in the 15th, 16th, 1700s, there was lots of debates between Protestants and Catholics, but Protestants they really held to this idea that the word of God is our ultimate standard. But in the 1800s, we start to see a shift, okay, because of liberalism, because of rationalism becoming more popular. It started out in Germany, and it spread its way to England, and eventually it would come over here to the States. And that's why the fundamentalists had to take a stand against it themselves. But um, in the 1800s, it had to do with the text. Can we trust the text that we've been using? Okay, this Bible that we have been preaching from, we've been learning from, can we trust it? Well, now there's this new text that's suggested. A new translation is proposed. And so this really caught on really quick. So I think that was the beginning of this great deception. It was like the devil once again saying, did God really say that? Is that really part of the Bible? Is that really the best way to interpret these doctrines, these teachings of Scripture? And, and sadly, but... This is the truth. The people who were undermining the authority of God's word in the 1800s when they started uh, um, proposing new texts and new translations, these people were compromising. A lot of them would say, we're Trinitarian, we're Orthodox, but they would have no problem working alongside a Unitarian on the translation board or translation committee of a Bible. So that was a problem. There are a lot of people that said, we're not going to have this. And they broke away and they formed the Trinitarian Bible Society. And they said, we're going to work together with people that have sound doctrine, and we're not going to work together with people that hold to evolution and, and hold to um, the idea that Jesus is just a man and not God. And so, again, that was all under the surface. A lot of people had no problem accepting the new translation, but they didn't know that behind the scenes there was an agenda, no doubt, from these people who were not doctrinally sound to erode that orthodox faith that people have held up until that time. And so that's the first way that it begins. Of course, it it happens in different ways. Later on, I think one way that it's happening among evangelicals is people who they do believe the word of God. They believe in the Trinity. They believe that God's word is inerrant. Uh, but they've started taking the Bible when it comes to our origins, when it comes to the book of Genesis. And they will reinterpret it and say, listen, we believe the Bible. We, we believe the Bible and we take it literally. We just think that literally those days are millions of years. And so instead of God creating in six days, of 24 hours, God created in six days of millions of years. And so that's a very popular belief now. And you have people who they're out front debating atheists, they're apologists, but they hold this view. And there's a lot of tension between them, the old earth creationists and the young earth creationists, 
because obviously this has to do with the plainness of Scripture. And if you erode the plainness of Scripture when it comes to something like the six days of creation, why wouldn't you do it when it comes to the New Testament? Oh, well, it calls Jesus God, but maybe that's not really meaning the same thing as when it calls the Father God. Maybe it means something different. I've heard this said before by people. Um, about the resurrection, what if it's a spiritual resurrection? Maybe it's not a physical one like the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that it was a spirit resurrection, but it wasn't an actual physical resurrection. So if you erode the plainness of Scripture in Genesis, that's going to affect the way you look at everything else. If people say it's a slippery slope, that's a logical fallacy, but we've seen these trends. We've seen it happen time and time again. So we have to make sure that we are on our guard. So that's the first point. Don't be naive and be aware that deception is very persistent. We can't think that it's going to be easy for us. And we sometimes let our guards down, I think, because we come into church and we think, hey, we're here with our family, right? This is our church family. But the Bible warns time and time again of people who come inside from without, and they bring with them ideas that don't line up with Scripture. So we have to be careful. All right, verse 2, hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. So now we have a test of truth. So that's your uh, point for number two. We have a test of truth. We can know what is really of God. Now, what exactly is this test? Now, there is um, a context. There is a background here we need to look at. The people who were threatening the congregation that John is preaching to were not teaching old earth creationism. They weren't teaching evolution. What they were teaching was that Jesus is not really God incarnate. So they believe that the spirit of Christ, so Christ is this otherworldly spirit, a divine spirit, one among many, by the way. Gnosticism believed in many different uh, divine beings. But this particular divine being, the Christ, came upon Jesus at his baptism and stayed with him throughout his ministry, so he performed all these miracles. And then at the crucifixion, the spirit of Christ left. And so this idea is basically saying Jesus is not actually the Christ, so the Christ spirit empowers him, but he's not actually Christ himself. Sounds so a lot like the it, it does sound a lot like the Antichrist, which is what we're about to talk about. So this idea that the Christ spirit comes upon Jesus, uh, in, a, in essence, is saying Jesus is not God in the flesh. And what John, obviously, I mean, out of all the apostles and out of all the writers of the New Testament, well, maybe the exception of Paul, he's very clear about the deity of Christ. And he says in... John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And then verse 14, the Word became flesh. It doesn't say the Word appeared to be flesh. The Word hovered over a person named Jesus and empowered that person, rested on him. No, the Word became flesh, which strongly implies um, that we have God becoming man. And so that's one of the things that they were dealing with back then. So the two points that I want you to remember is, one— the Spirit never contradicts himself. So John is saying, I've taught you this. You know that Jesus Christ is not empowered by Christ's Spirit. Jesus Christ is God the Son in the flesh. So he actually took on flesh. And the Gnostics hated that. They thought the flesh was evil. And there's no way that God could take on flesh like that, that God could become a man. But John says that's exactly what happened. That's what you heard from the very beginning. And anybody that comes and says, listen, I have a spirit of prophecy. I have a revelation from God. And they contradict what I've told you. They're wrong because God never contradicts himself. Now, in Islam, their version of God, he can contradict himself all day long. 
If there's something in the Quran here that doesn't go along with the Quran here, they'll say, oh, well, it's the doctrine of abrogation. You just take the one that came latest, okay? What's Exactly, and that's the way Satan operates. That is exactly the way Satan operates. It's true that the flesh has been corrupted, but the flesh itself isn't a bad thing. And in fact, when God created everything in the beginning, it was a physical creation. Yeah, it was flesh. All right, nothing wrong with that. But uh, that's right, Satan does corrupt truths like that, and he uses half-truths to um, employ his deceptions. But the Spirit never contradicts himself. So John's saying, what God said back then when I first shared this with you is still true today. And it hasn't changed. And this is called the analogy of faith. If you want a technical way of referring to it, this is called the analogy of faith. So faith says, okay, God never changes his mind when it comes to what is true and what is right. Okay, God is never an error, right? He doesn't say after the fact, well, you know what? I made a mistake, guys. Let me correct that. Okay, God always knows truth at all times. So anywhere in the Bible where we see, you know, an alleged contradiction, or some apparent tension, it's with us. It's our problem. It's not God's problem, okay? God's word is true and unchanging all throughout. So the analogy of faith basically says that scripture interprets scripture. Jamie, shh, be quiet, okay? Sit down now, okay? Be a good boy. All right, second point. The spirit always elevates Jesus always elevates Jesus to his proper place as God. Anybody that comes saying, I represent the authentic Christianity, y'all just excuse Jamie, he's having a moment, but anybody that comes and says, I represent authentic Christianity, but they deny the deity of Christ, that is not of God. And yesterday when we were at the farmer's market and I saw that booth of Jehovah's Witnesses, I didn't get an opportunity to talk to him this time, but trust me, I'm going to. Okay, I planned on it. I said, next time we get there earlier, I'm going to go over there, and I've decided I've already got two questions I'm going to ask them. Okay, how high is your Jesus, and how big is his grace? Because that's what it comes down to. Their Jesus ain't high enough, and their understanding of God's grace isn't big enough. They also teach there's not a hell. Yeah, that's it, and that goes along with that second point. The grace of God is so great that it covers our sin, which condemns us to everlasting punishment. And I think that you have such a you have such a, a temptation to say I can save myself, especially if you think that the consequences aren't so severe. Oh, it's not right. such a big problem as hell, right? I mean, we get extinguished, right? We disappear, all right? Everlasting hell just seems so overwhelming. No one could ever think that they could save themselves from that if that's what God has said. If God said my righteousness is so great that that's what you deserve, there's no way you can over overcome that. But if it's God cuts you off, okay? All right, God gives you the spiritual guillotine, so to speak, then I might be able to cover that. I might be able to do that. So it makes their view of work salvation more reasonable to them. And you see that in all these cults that it tends to happen where they believe in work salvation and they also deny the eternity of hell. It's the same thing with some other cults such as Mormons. Their view is a little more complicated. My question is like, there's only 144,000, what are your odds of being in that? And if you're not in that, what's the point? Well, I think that since the early 1900s, they have basically said that number has come in, but they do believe that there are two different places where saints will be, in heaven and on earth. And so I believe that they'll say that the 144,000 have that reserved heavenly glory awaiting them, and then everybody else is going to be on earth, which is not as great as heaven, but it is pretty good. 
So it's not the outer darkness, right? So anyways, anytime someone comes to you and says, I represent authentic Christianity, but they remove Jesus from the highest possible place, you got a problem. And, And when I say highest possible, it's easy to illustrate this from scripture. Jesus called King of Kings. Can you have two King of Kings? Can you have two Lords of Lords or Gods of Gods or God of Gods? That's actually an expression in the scriptures. That Yahweh is the God of gods, that all the other gods are pretenders. Jamie is having a morning, y'all. He's having a morning. Mama's got it. She comes to the rescue. Thank you, Mama. All right. I always ask one thing that doesn't have an opposite. Yeah, exactly. And and they like the everlasting life part, but when it says everlasting punishment in the same breath in Matthew 25, no, 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 everlasting means something different there. Oh, well, so they're right next to each other, but they mean two completely different things, even though they're the same word in the original language. It sounds like special pleading to me, okay? It doesn't seem logical or reasonable at all. Again, scripture never contradicts itself. And God speaks plainly in the Bible, thankfully. I don't have to be left guessing about it. All right, and another thing, this is one that it's kind of subtle. Now, people who are in the word of faith movement, they do believe that Jesus is fully God and in the flesh. They don't deny that historic creed that we have, the Nicene Creed, Apostles' Creed. They don't deny those. But what's interesting is they do elevate man to an unhealthy position. So if you bring Jesus down low, that's one way the heresy works, but you can also bring man way too high up. And what they do is they call human beings little gods. The little gods doctrine is actually very popular among prosperity preachers. Kenneth Copeland is one of them. The idea is that we are like God. We're the same sort of stuff as God, essentially speaking. And God created things by faith. Faith is a power that can be wielded, and we have the word of faith. We speak with faith, and we can make things happen. We can alter reality just like God alters reality because we're like him. So this takes the whole idea of the imago Dei, the image of God, and it twists it to say that we are exactly like God, and we're able to do what God does. And so this little God's idea doesn't bring Jesus down explicitly, But implicitly it does because it brings us up to his level. And how can you have a a high view of God if you put us, human beings, with all of our limitations? How can you have a high view of God if we're on the same level as God? Isn't it in Psalms where God God says, I called you gods or something? Yes, but yeah, that's Psalm 82, I believe. It's either Psalm 82 or 92. All right, it's true that in the scriptures there are... That's not what he's saying. No, okay. When we're called Elohim in the Bible, it's used to be representative, like giving his example from the Old Testament when Moses was called to go before Pharaoh, uh, Moses was going to be like God to the Pharaoh. But he doesn't say Moses would be God absolutely. He would be like God to Pharaoh, which, we're supposed to be. which we are representative of God. And so in that way, in a derived sense, yes, scripture does occasionally call us gods, but it's not in an essential ontological sense. But that's what they believe in the word of faith movement is that the same power that God has, we have too. And I don't believe that. I believe God's the master and we're the servant. God's the creator and we're the creation. So that's another subtle way that heresy can work its way into a church and it's become very prominent. All right, now let's move on to number three, verse three. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of antichrist Whereof ye have heard it that it should come, and even now 
is in the world. So number three on your notes is the test of falsehood. Falsehood. Get the word out. I'm going to drink a sip of water here. Test of falsehood. So the first point is the satanic delusion of the end times is already at work. I think that it's really easy for us to say it's going to get really bad. It's not that bad now. It's not that bad yet. And so we can kind of let our guard down. And so I don't know if John felt that at the end of his life, he was living in the end times in the uh, limited sense that, you know, Jesus is going to come back soon, like within years, you know. I don't know what his opinions were. But regardless, what he's saying to his congregation is don't let your guard down. I think it's even possible that since 70 AD had already happened, the temple had already been destroyed, mm -hmm. that maybe there were a bunch of Christians who were thinking it's probably not going to happen anytime soon because it appears that Israel has just been cast off by God temporarily. And reasonably speaking, while it could happen in our lifetime, then being restored, it may not happen in our lifetime. It just seems more reasonable that this is uh, a token of an extended period of judgment on the Jews until they repent and they are saved. So it could be that if that was an idea floating around at the time, then maybe he's saying, look, the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world. Don't think, well, we're not that close, yeah. that we're not needing to put on that armor every single day and be on our guard because the same spirit of the Antichrist, though he's being restrained, the spirit of the Antichrist is Satan. Okay, he's the one that's going to empower the Antichrist, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2. So that same spirit is already at work in the world. So even if the end times doesn't happen in your lifetime and that great falling away that the other apostles talk about, that John talks about, even if you don't see it happen, it doesn't mean that you don't have something to face yourself that there are spiritual conflicts that could make their way into your church, so be on your guard. The next point is the satanic delusion is a reaction to Christianity. And this is something that I don't believe is reading into the text when it says the spirit is anti-Christ. It doesn't just mean in place of Christ. Like, okay, somebody happens to choose Hinduism, which happens to contradict Christianity. No, this is against. And what we see in our culture what we see in the Western world, the Gentile world, which, would is, which has been blessed for the past 2,000 years, which it was talked about. And remember this in Revelation, or not Revelation, sorry, another R book, Romans chapter 12, it talks about how the Gentiles, they were being blessed exceptionally. But be careful that you don't take that for granted because if God can discipline and cast off his own people for a time, he can do the same thing for you. And we're seeing that. For the longest time, Gentiles have been the ones who have known the truth about God, who have been sticking to the word of God. And now we're starting to see the Gentile world is turning away. And we're going to see at some point the Gentile world as a whole will turn away. There will be a remnant of Gentiles and Israel as a whole will turn back to the Lord. It's going to be a switch. For 2,000 years, Israel has been, for the most part, against Jesus. And Gentiles have been, at least in the Western world, for Jesus. The superpowers of the world have been Christian, at least nominally speaking. In name at least. In name at least. But that is changing as we speak. And we're seeing an all-out rebellion against the name of Jesus. Um, me and Katie, we like superhero shows. We don't get the time to watch them very much. 
But there's this one show that came out, and I've decided I'm not even going to try because I've read reviews about it, and a lot of people are not liking it either. I don't know if they don't like it for the same reasons that I do. But they created this show called Miss Marvel, and it's meant to, to really highlight diversity in media. They're really wanting to push it down your throat, okay? These poor people, okay? And when I'm talking about poor people, it's never the Christians who are being persecuted, okay? It's Muslims who are misunderstood and caricatured by American Christians. I don't think that it's a caricature, but that's a rabbit trail. The point that I'm trying to make is in this show, they highlight this woman, this young lady who is a Muslim, and her whole quest in the show revolves around her Muslim faith. So it's thrown in your face the whole time. This is a Muslim. This is a Muslim. Okay, Muslims are looked down upon. Muslims are mistreated. We really need to share with you this so you can look at Muslims differently. Okay, that's not really what I think entertainment's about. Entertainment should be about entertaining people. (laughs) But nowadays it's about pushing an agenda. But what's ironic is Islam is different than paganism because they believe in one God. Okay. I think it's interesting, though, that they will admit they will allow Islam in the entertainment. We'll highlight Islam. But would they ever, would Disney ever highlight the evangelical Christianity of a teenage girl? Never. And so what I notice is Christianity is always the odd man out. In the media, they blast Christians, but they'll build up Muslims. Even though Muslims believe, by the way, Muslims believe in hell. Oh, absolutely. You know, so y'all will will say, so y'all will say Christians are intolerant because they believe in hell, but yet you'll create a show about Islam and they believe in hell. So I think it's ironic, but shouldn't that really not come as a surprise to us when the spirit of Antichrist is against Christianity, against Christ? So it doesn't matter if at time this spirit appears inconsistent because the people who are deceived by Satan, they don't see those inconsistencies even though they're there, and the devil doesn't care as long as he gets people. Again, going back to the Garden of Eden, at first, what does the devil say? Did God really say that? So it seems at first that this serpent's like, I'm on God's side. I just want you to understand what he says, you know? Y'all are misunderstanding God. I believe in God. I I believe in God. I know what he says. But then the next thing he says is, God's a liar. That's not true. God knows that if you take this, you're going to be like him. He doesn't want you to be like him. So you see that, like in the same breath, it's, I'm on God's side. You just don't understand his word right. And then boom, God's a liar. You would think that Eve would have been like, wait a second. You just changed your whole perspective in the blink of an eye. The devil doesn't care because he knows that people can be duped either way. So over here, it may seem that he says one thing, but then he'll say something else altogether. But the unifying theme, okay, in the midst of all those contradictions, the unifying theme is against Christ, against Jesus. Whether it's done subtly or it's done explicitly, against Christ. And the more and the more we see this antichrist spirit in our culture, the more I wonder if that time where the restrainer is removed is coming and it's fastly approaching. Because we're seeing it more than we've ever seen it before. And there's always been this holdout Okay, here in the West, yes, Christianity has been persecuted all over the world. And God's been working in amazing ways there. But there's been this hold off in the West. Okay, a bright shining beacon of Christianity, okay, at least in name, and freedom and liberty and Christian values, which by the way, there's an atheist historian, I forget his name. He's written a whole book on it. He said that all these values that we prize so much in the West, 
like freedom and valuing life, okay, even if we're starting to see those eroding, all of those things come from Christianity. So he said, if you like the values, why are you resisting the Christianity? He says, people are actually resisting Christianity, but they're going to find themselves without a basis for these values that they treasure. And those values will eventually erode entirely because they have nothing to be based on. So as we see that Antichrist spirit becoming more obvious and more apparent around us, that is a reminder that we have to be on our guard against that spirit. We have to be on guard against it when it comes to what our kids listen to and what they watch. We have to be on guard for the, the, for the sake of our friends, you know, standing in the gap for those that we know that we see deceived. Now, of course, they have to make their own choices. We can't make their choice for them, but we need to stand in the gap and say, listen, you're already hearing enough from the Antichrist spirit. I want to share the spirit of Christ with you so at least they can know to make an informed choice. Now, uh, verse number four, continuing, it says, Ye are of God, little children, and overcome them, overcome the false prophets, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. So for number four in your notes, we have two identities, and we have two states. Two identities, and we have two states. Two identities and two states. The first point is believers are already immune from the worst effect of deception. Now, what would be the worst effect of deception? We talked about standing in the gap for our friends and family. Never come, to Christ. never come to Christ. Now, these people who he's writing to, they are already immune from that. Okay, and I'll read you another verse at the end of 1 John. It's chapter 5, and it's verse 18. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. What's saying is there is a part of us that doesn't sin. We've already discussed this. It's our new nature from Christ. We don't always act in accordance with that nature, but we have it. And that's the real us now. And he's saying that real us cannot be touched by the devil. So while our flesh gets us in trouble, our flesh will pass away whether we die or Jesus comes back, whichever happens first. Our spirit has already been cleaned. We're already overcomers. In Christ. So that's what he's saying here. You're not of them. You've already overcome. Now, obviously, his readers, he's already commended them for not listening to these people. He's warning them to make sure they don't in the future, but they've already overcome in other ways. He's saying, keep going, okay, persevere. But right here, he's highlighting their identity. You're already overcomers, okay? No matter what they say to you, they can never trap you and kill you, spiritually speaking. The Bible says the devil, he is a thief. He is one who cometh to steal and destroy, and he has the power of death, a murderer from the beginning. Hebrews 2 says that he has the power of death, not in the sense that he is the one who condemns anybody, but he's the one that brings the deception, that if someone believes it and buys into it, it will lead to condemnation if it's not changed, if there's no repentance. And so we are immune from that. Isn't that wonderful to know that we are safe in the arms of the Lord? But... Let's talk about the world. It says the world, they're of the world, so they speak of the world, and the world is going to hear them. So we shouldn't really be surprised. Unlike Christians, the lost have only one path available to them, worldliness. Why should we expect anything different? Now, Christians have two paths available to them, okay? And we'll talk about that in the next verse here. They have two paths available to them. We can act in accordance with our new nature, or we can quench the spirit, and we can act against God and be carnal, but the people who are of the world are always going to act like the world in some degree. 
Some may appear more sinful to us than others, but they're all going to be in that bondage until Christ sets them free from it. So this causes frustration. It causes grief, but I've heard Tony Ramirez say it many times. Uh, for those who are listening, he was my youth pastor for many years. I still look up to him because he was such an instrumental person in, in encouraging me to be uh, a pastor as the Lord had called me. I, I had been called, but I didn't have any opportunities. Nobody was really saying, here, teach this class here, buddy. Would you like to try your hand at preaching if that's what the Lord's calling you to do? No one did that for me until Tony Ramirez. But uh, he said, we can't expect the world to act any way different than what they are. They're the world, so they're going to act worldly. And until they're saved, there's not going to be any change. And even after getting saved, sometimes that remnant, our flesh, can exert influence over us that we have to overcome and we have to suppress that in righteousness. <laughs> and we don't always do that. And there are consequences, and we talked about those, and um, our salvation is always secure, but um, that's another topic that we've discussed on other occasions, but though that causes us grief to see the world act the way that they do, that resistance illustrates the difference between them and us. And so this is how we take encouragement from it. When we see the world acting worldly, it brings into stark reality what we are called to do in this life. Um, in First Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul talks about the drunkenness of the world. He's like, they're of the world. Okay, they're, they're of darkness, of the night. And because they're of the night, what do they do? Well, people get drunk at night. Okay, they party in the evening. Well, those people, it makes sense for them because that's who they are. But you are children of light, children of the day. So you don't need to be drunk. You need to be sober and vigilant. And so what he's saying is you know this behavior. You've seen it. You see the world and how they act. That should remind you of your place in this. Because when it comes to John... He's all about light and dark. He's all about, as Steve just mentioned earlier, opposites, light and darkness, day and night. So when you see the night, what does that tell you? Am I of them or am I of God? And then you remind yourself, wow, God's called me. I'm an overcomer. I'm not like them. And so I need to be different. I don't need to be like the people that I don't belong to anymore. And so it keeps us on our toes. It really does. When I see how thorough deception is and how it can grip people and they're oblivious to it often, it reminds me that Christians can easily fall prey to the same deception if they're not careful. And that's why if I seem a little too on guard to the world around me, that's fine. I'm going to look that way to them, right. right? Because they don't see things my way. Especially as the world gets darker. Especially darker. as the world gets darker, we need to be more and more hardened in our resolve to stand apart from them. And that separation, it's going to make things awkward. It's going to unnecessarily create conflict, not not conflict that we want. It's going to put targets on us. It's going to put targets on us. And you got to be very afraid of Exactly. And as sad as that is, it's a reminder that everything that we see is passing away. People, guys, are going to live for the world. Okay? They're going to invest in extending their life desperately. Like, I think that God wants me to take care of myself so I can be a good witness, right? Take care of my family. But I'm not going to go about extending my life because this is all that there is. But that'd be a pretty miserable way to think, right? This is all that there is, and it's all going to pass away, so I better get the most out of it that I can. But that's how people are living. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. And that's not the way Christians live. So again, as that mentality becomes so pervasive, we have to set ourselves apart, and we have to show these people as priests of God that the reason we're different is because there is a difference between the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of Antichrist. 
First Thessalonians or Matthew 24 when it, they're saying like they'll be giving in marriage. And it's Matthew 24, yeah. Absolutely, Matthew 24, uh, as it was just said, uh, it says they'll be eating and they'll be drinking and giving in marriage, and, and life is going to be going on pretty much like normal. Everybody who is of the world is going to be happy with the way they're living, and then all of a sudden, the peace and safety, as they're saying those words, is going to evaporate. And there's going to be coming a sudden destruction. And so we as Christians, it's our job to warn them and say, look, we are literally like drop down here. It's like God's got a chain hooked to us and he's dangling us down in this world just for a little bit. And that's why we're so different because we're connected to that heavenly world. Our citizenship is of heaven. So we want you to be connected too. So that way when he snatches us away, you'll be with us. And so that's something we need to, um, we need to have on our minds constantly. Our very, our very, uh, government wants us to think that certain things are right that are wrong yes little subtle things that are thrown at us every day that uh, we need to enter into this and we need to bless that because it's just the way it is now it's also just different and we need to you know there's so many yes kids are indoctrinated into that very young and they're growing up believing that there you go and that's why you have the there you go did you know twitter is now going to be removing abortion misinformation they don't surprise me that they would censor things like that. They've already done it so much, and we're just going to see it increase more and more. But this is what scares me about all of this happening around us, guys, that Christians, we are in more danger now than ever to become drunk with the world. And the devil is exerting all the energy he can. He can't take us, okay? He can't take our soul, okay? He can't slay us. We're overcomers, and the wicked one cannot touch us. However, doesn't that put us in a position where we can easily let our guard down? And many Christians have done that. People who believe in eternal security, they're believing correctly, but they don't always act consistently with that. And if you're eternally secure, you should say, well, praise God, I am. I'm going to honor the Lord of my life. But there are some people that will kind of push spiritual things out of their mind, okay? And if it ever surfaces, you know, they'll say, oh, well, I'm saved. But they're pushing the, the spiritual things out of their mind, and they're looking more and more like the world. And it may not harm them. It may not have any drastic consequences for their salvation, but what about their kids? And what about all the people that they know around them? Everybody they know. Isabel, sometimes, well, I, I just tell them all the time, you know, like, well, why don't we watch this? We don't watch this because the world is against God, and the closer we get to Jesus coming back, the more against God it is. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to pull you into that worldview yes. through this media. And we are not going to watch it. Yeah. I mean, and you do have to be careful and discerning. Uh, there were we were talking to y'all about this, but there was a show that we were watching. It was a spinoff of How to Train Your Dragon, and first episode. It's you know me and Katie are watching it with the kids. Like we don't just watch them watch anything or let them watch anything. We monitor it. But as they're watching the show, it throws in there you know lesbian couple, and and I'm like I'm not gonna let them get used to that and think that it's okay. Okay, now if you get around people who are who are getting drunk all the time, eventually it becomes it's just something those people do, right? You get used to it, okay? You get desensitized to it. I don't want them to get desensitized to something that's sinful right. and that the world is trying to push down their throats. And, and the world, and through television, pushes all that very thing yes. down their throat because exactly. you can't see a program right there. That's what, yeah. And it's becoming more and more like, even when we're watching a, a, a streaming app and we're watching a show that's clean, the... The ads that come on, the ads are, the ads are in your face and not just, 
girls kissing or two men yes. kissing or whatever. And, yeah. and it's just getting worse and worse. Yeah. And so it's like, well, you know, if I want to watch the show on this app, I might have to pay some extra dollars to not have to watch these ads. And because that's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. They're money I'm telling you. But at um, the same time, that's the world. They're going to act like the world. We shouldn't expect anything different. That's right. We have to like inoculate our kids against it so that they know. You know, when you get bigger, they're going to try to suck you into this. They're trying to suck you into yes. it now. You need to be standing firm in what you know. Because otherwise, you're going to be wishy-washy, just like all of them falling for whatever. Exactly, them. and and it's it's not that they shouldn't see it. It's not just the kids that. Um, it's also the kids in all the school, the public schools. I oh mean, man, you know, they don't I mean, have public schools and all their, you know, D Governor DeSantis down in Florida said no, we're not. Yeah. You know. No, we're not grooming them. We're not, yeah, we're not teaching them. And, um, you know, but out west, let me tell you, they are on it. Yeah. In the schools, I mean, my mother-in-law is going to be 90 in January, and we had a talk, we talked with her a couple of years ago about our country, and she thinks we're an evil country because of slavery. That's like slavery has been around since Jesus' time. Oh, so what makes time. us so bad, you know? So she's believing and she's watching the lamestream indoctrination. And um, she believes it. Yeah. And there's thousands, you know? thousands of men that died. I know. For them to be free. It, yeah, and what, what I was going to yeah. say is when we look at the stuff around us, whether it's through the media or elsewhere, okay, it's not that we're not going to be – we cannot completely – entirely avoid. avoid it. It's not going to happen. Even if you're just going out and about, you're going to see it. What I'm saying is we should not allow them to get used to it. Right. So when they see it, it's not like, they can identify it as yes, false. this is false now. But if it's, if it's one of these shows that's showing it again and again and again and again, I can't be there nonstop to say, that's not okay. That's not okay. So that's one of those things I'm like, I'm turning off the TV. Okay, but if it happens every now and then, if we're out and about and we see it, okay, I'm not going to cover their eyes. Okay, I'm going to say, you see that right there? That's wrong. Yeah. And we're not like that. Yeah. And we need to love these people we right. and we need to share the gospel with these people and be priests. Well. I, I've said it again and again. Every time I see a student, uh, even the other day, me and Katie were in Walmart. These students that I've had at CLC, um, I try to do my part in reminding them the things that they've been taught. And so I saw one fella, he got saved during my class, um, and I saw him working at Walmart, and I don't know what he's doing right now. He was talking about dating this girl, and I just want to make sure that he's going about it God's way. I didn't go into that. I don't know anything about their relationship. Maybe everything's going well. But what I said is, be a priest wherever you're at. He was talking about leaving Walmart, getting a new job. I said, it doesn't matter where you are. This is sacred time because you're interacting with people every single day, and you can be a light to those around you. And again, reminding yourself, you're not part of everybody else. You've got that, that holy link to God attached to you. And he wants you down here only so long as it is to fulfill his purpose. And that's something that puzzled me. I always wondered as a kid, okay, well, I got saved. Why doesn't God just rapture all the Christians as soon as they get saved? Who would be left to share the gospel with these people? So he's given us a sacred commission, a privilege it is. To represent him. Now let's wrap it up. Uh, verse number six. First uh, John four six. We are of God. We are of God. That could be the apostles, but I think that extends even broader than that to his readers. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God 
heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So pre predominantly, you know, lying in the background of this is John saying more than once that, listen, we have fellowship with God. The apostles do. We've seen him. We've touched him. We, we, have, we have apprehended the spirit. We have apprehended uh, the Christ in a way that no one else has. And we are here to tell you that the fellowship that Christ had with the Father, he has with us. And you can have that same fellowship. He's talking to born-again people. So you can be of God if you're with us. If you want to be in good standing in the family, you need to stick with us doctrinally and in your practice by loving one another. And so the apostles, this is the point that I want you all to know. Well, sorry, first number five. We have two mindsets and two responses. That's what this verse is about. Two mindsets and two responses. So the two mindsets would be John saying, listen, we're of God. We got it right. We're believing sound doctrine. We're teaching that doctrine. We're loving one another. We got the right mindset. The world has another mindset. Don't buy into that mindset. And those are the two responses. You can respond to the Christian mindset, be in fellowship with God, or you can rebel against it, and you can be at odds with God. Even as a believer, you can be at odds with God if you don't respond properly to God's word. But this is the point that I wanted to get across, and then we'll wrap it up and we'll have some food. Any debate, praise, of, the, Lord. praise the Lord, any debate about truth, any debate about any truth for a Christian must always come back to the Bible. And if it doesn't, you don't got the right mindset. I don't care what it is. I'm never going to lay aside the Bible in any debate with someone when it comes to marriage, homosexuality, uh, or just sexuality in general, uh, abortion, way of government, how we should govern ourselves as descendants of Noah in this new world after God's judgment of the flood. How should we, how should we bring about justice around us? What's the right view of social justice? I'm going to go back to the Bible. When it comes to my understanding of God, Bible. My understanding of Jesus, Bible. My understanding of salvation, Bible. In times, current events, Bible, Bible, Bible. Role as a person, role as parent. Everything. Everything goes back to the Bible because nothing else matters. Anything else can be fabricated by the enemy. Anything. There were a lot of fabrications going on in this day with the Gnostics and their heresy, and there's going to be some newfangled way of deceiving people in the last days. And, you know, we have ideas about how that deception might work, but we don't know. Ultimately, anything can be fabricated by the devil. He is ingenious in the way he devises falsehoods and he surrounds them with truths. The social justice stuff is so insidious because they take this little, like, kernel of truth. Like about just loving, just take the, the concept of loving and they misapply it in this way that you come out and your head is so twisted and yes. backwards. Yes, yes. That they're using the scripture to manipulate. Exactly. Critical race theory. Okay. Exactly. People might cite scripture to back up critical race theory. Okay. It's not biblical. It's not biblical at all. Listen, the world doesn't fall into, okay, you're completely a victim and you're completely an oppressor. It doesn't work that way. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have tendencies. Countries have tendencies. We need to be aware of those. Okay? But we can't make those blanket statements. And that's what critical race theory is trying to get people to do. We want people to hate our country right, right now. Yeah. Okay? For things it did a long time ago. 
They want you to hate yourself. They as, want you to hate yourself. As a, as, yeah, as a white male, I should hate myself. Person, yeah. Especially transracial adoption, because I got in a couple of those groups, and I noticed that it was tweaking my thinking, and I was like, this isn't right. So I ended up leaving all those groups and following the Center for Biblical Unity. Amen. Which is biblical unity, and it's nothing like critical race theory. I don't know if anybody who's listening to this right now can hear everything that's being said elsewhere in the room, but basically what we're wrapping things up with is we have to go back to the Bible, whether it's, you know, a moral issue or a theological issue. Ultimately, they're linked, aren't they? Because the God of our Christian theology is the God who wrote the rules and who has established those rules to govern our our behavior, morally speaking. But we have to go back to the Bible. The Bible at least can only be twisted, Okay. Now, anything trying to add to it, well, we know that. That's fabrication of the enemy. But it can be twisted. But here's the thing. Here's what acts against that twisting. One, we have the Holy Spirit. But two, God speaks plainly. If anybody comes to me and says, well, I don't believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus is really God. I'm going to say, you're wrong because the Bible plainly teaches that. It's not something that I read into the text. It's not something that I go through concordances and I try to find some variant translation to justify my view. It is the plainest sense of the text that Jesus is fully God. And if you don't like it, then your problem is with God and his word. It's not with me, really. It's with God and his word. So that's the one thing that we have that we need to fall back on is the plain sense of scripture when it comes to salvation. John 3.16, plain as can be. John 1, 1, when Jesus is with God the Father and he is fully God himself, plain as can be. When it comes to the value of human life, plain as can be. And we could keep going on and on. But two mindsets, two responses. And hopefully our response to the world around us will be governed by that biblical mindset at all times. And that's how we test the spirits. He doesn't say, all right, have a seance. Okay, try to communicate with the spirit. You light some candles. You say certain kinds of prayers. Talk to the priest because after all, the priests know everything you don't know. So go find a priest. No, he says, this is how you discern the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, the word of God. So with that, we're going to wrap it up. We're going to cut it off. I'm getting the signal to cut it off and I'm doing that right now. God bless.